We'll see if this works. Um, do we have any Chicago Cubs fans in here this morning? There is only one that I know, and he normally stands back there in that sound booth. And um, I, I had planned on speaking on a particular topic here that has to do with the Chicago Cubs before they won last night's game that put them into the World Series. Um, I don't know who I should pray for more, the Indians or the Cubs or Brian Robinson, because it's you all against him, aren't you? So I think this was the very thing he was trying to avoid, but um, he's not here, so I don't know what that means. But uh, um, there is a story that I wanted to talk about that involves the Chicago Cubs. Um, now that Brian's Cubs have gotten into the World Series for the first time in, I think, 70, 71 years, I think it's safe for me to tell this story. They've gotten the monkey off their back, so here we go with this story. And some of you remember this. Back in 2003, the Chicago Cubs were playing the Florida Marlins in what they just won yesterday. They were in the National League uh, pennant race championship series. The Cubs were winning three games to two. You have to win four games to get to the World Series. And they needed one more game to get to the big game, the big series. On October 14th of 2003, it was game number six. Again, they were up three games to two. It was the eighth inning, and the Cubs were winning three to nothing. So it was at Wrigley Field, you can feel the tension, you can feel the excitement building. And at this time, there, were, there was one out in the eighth inning, and Florida Marlins batter hits a foul ball down the third base line. It's right on the edge there to where the fan can get it or the player might be able to jump up and get it. Several fans, as they always do, they reached over the wall to try and grab the foul ball. And one of those men's name is Steve Bartman. How many of you remember that name, Steve Bartman? One or two people. All right, three or four, all right? If Brian were here, he'd be crying right now, all right? That guy right there on the screen, his name is Steve Bartman. He reached over the wall just like a couple other fans, as any fan would do, to get the foul ball, not realizing that that player had a legitimate shot at catching that foul ball, which would have been out number two, but Bartman just interfered with him and disrupted him from making the play. It would have been the second out in the inning, leaving the Cubs with just four outs away from the World Series. Instead, he wasn't able to make the play. The Cubs gave up eight runs after that play in that inning. And eventually lost the game. The next game was getting, the next day was game seven. The Marlins won. They went to the World Series instead of the Cubs. And believe it or not, if you don't know this story, I know some of you sports fans, you know this, but believe it or not, Steve Bartman, that man up there on the screen, was seen by many as the reasons, the, the reason the Cubs did not go to the World Series. Hard to believe, isn't it? Um, during that part of the game, fans began yelling at him, cursing at him, throwing cups of beer and throwing all kinds of things 
at him. The situation turned really ugly and dangerous. The security guards had to come and uh, take Steve Bartman out of the stands because it was getting bad. And uh, he became within minutes public enemy number one. Um, In order to get him out of the park, they had to disguise him just so people would not know. he. They were looking for him. They were looking to hurt him. Um, And they had to disguise him. Uh, They put him in a vehicle to take him away. Even a few days after this, policemen had to circle where he lived just in order to protect him. Even Chicago Governor Rob Blagojevich, I think that's how he mentioned his name, Blagojevich, he joined in on the madness and he said this, probably just to get reelected, but he said this, if that man ever gets convicted of a crime here in Chicago, he'll never receive a pardon from me. And he even encouraged him to enter into the witness protection program. Just amazing. And the main security guard who was trying to help Steve Bartman get out safely um, said the entire time Steve never said a word. He was just dazed. He was in shock. He in disbelief. He could not believe what was taking place. It was all like a horrible dream to him that he was receiving all the angst of all of these people and he didn't even know who won the game. Life was going along just fine for Steve Bartman and within a few minutes the storm of his life was upon him. And I believe that his life for the longest time after that, ESPN ended up doing a documentary about his life and I believe for the longest time after that he was greatly affected about, uh, by this episode. Couldn't go anywhere. Um, I don't know if he had to move or had to move away, but it's amazing. This all sounds silly, doesn't it? Tells you about the idol and the God that sports are in this nation. Say amen or ouch. Yeah. Just like that. We kind of laugh at this today, but there's a man's life right there who was in shambles because of that. Thus far in our series on lessons from the Red Sea, we've learned that if you find yourself in an inexplicable storm, one that you did not do anything to uh, enter into, there are three things thus far that we've learned. Number one, know that you are exactly where God wants you to be. If you've not done anything to the best of your knowledge that uh, has brought this storm on, you have to believe, number one, that you are exactly where God wants you to be. The Israelites found themselves on the edge of the Red Sea. There was no place to go. And if you look at uh, Exodus 13, you'll see that's exactly where God wanted them to go. So you're exactly where God wants you to be. Secondly, we need to start asking the right questions. Instead of saying, God, why me? Or how did this happen? Ask, how can God be glorified through my storm? Last week we talked about number, lesson number three. Through your storm, you need to know who the enemy is. Know who the enemy is. There are times in our lives... When a storm, when a crisis will hit, and the first thing that we'll want to do is panic. Times when you desperately just want to get out of the way, anything, as long as you can just get out of the mess. Or maybe you're like that Steve Bartman, and the only thing that you want to do is just go hide. Or you want some kind of a hole just to 
swallow you up. And this leads us to lesson number four. Pray. Now, you're going to see I came to church just to hear the pastor say, pray. Well, duh, that's a duh statement. Who isn't going to pray in their storm? Who isn't going to pray in their crisis? But my question for you and me this morning is, are we really praying and are we praying correctly? You know, I think it's easy for us to forget to do the one thing that is most needed while we're in our storm which is to pray. We do everything else first, don't we? We'll talk to our spouse. We'll talk to our friends or our family members. We'll have various opinions. We'll take certain steps to resolve the problem. And then when things don't work out, that's when we cry out to God and say, God, I've given you time. I've given you a chance. Lord, you're not working things out in my way. I'm going to take matters into my own hands. And that's the problem. Most of the time, we are the ones I think we know what needs to be done instead of God. Go to Exodus chapter 14. Exodus chapter 14, continuing in our series with Moses and the Israelites. Exodus chapter 14. I want you to see this. Exodus chapter 14, verse 10. Exodus 14.10 says this, And when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Here they are, painting the picture once again, with their backs into a, backed into a corner, and the Israelites were hot on their tails. And they were in a panic. They had no place to turn. And what did they do? It tells us here that they looked up and they cried out to the Lord. That leads us right to our fourth lesson this morning. They cried out to the Lord. You know, David often found himself in times to where he was crying out to the Lord. In 2 Samuel 22, 7, he said, In my distress, I cried upon the Lord and cried out to my God. He heard my voice from his temple, and my cry entered his ears. In this fourth lesson of pray during your storm, there are three essential elements that I want to just briefly talk about this morning. Three essential elements for praying in the storms of life. See, it's just not a a matter of just simply just giving your request to God and just going about your day or, or, or just taking matters into your own hands. There are three things we need to remember. Number one, the Israelites prayed urgently and earnestly. They prayed earnestly and urgently. In those times when you might be tempted to panic, Turn your emotions of panic into times of being honest, urgent, and earnest before God. When the Israelites saw the Egyptians and Pharaoh bearing down on them, they didn't lift up some simple childlike bedtime prayer. It says they cried out to God. Have you ever had those times in your life when you just cried out to God? To where you were desperate? I have. 
you have as well. Never forget a story. Whenever I was down in Kentucky ministering down there, um, I don't I don't remember the exact time of it all. But uh, our senior pastor, Brother Bill, uh, was away, and uh, obviously I would help at different times visiting and covering hospital visits and things like that. And I was at the church, and I got a call from a family member saying that their mother had been rushed to the hospital. Eileen Fox was a uh, dear uh, lady of the church down there, a much-loved lady of the church, says that Eileen had been rushed to the hospital, and could you please come? And it sounded bad. It sounded pretty urgent. And so I drove down to the hospital, didn't know what I was in for, and um, I walked into the waiting room, and there is the emergency ER doctor with the family, and they were telling the family that Eileen had had a massive brain aneurysm. And that they had to immediately put her on life support. And the doctor was throwing all this information at them. Well, what does that mean? Is she going to make it? Is she going to survive? And she was on life support. And the doctor, with not too many bedside manners, looked at the family and said, within the 10, 15 minutes, I need you to make a choice. Take her off life support or leave her on life support. And he walked away. And the family looked at me and they said, Brock, what do we do? You ever feel like crying out to God? That was the time, a day and time, to where we cried out to God. Turns out that that just happened to be the day that God took Eileen home to be with him. In your storm, in your crisis, don't be afraid to cry out to God. Don't be afraid to be real with God. Don't be afraid to be raw with God. He knows your emotions. He knows what you're going through. Cameron Thompson, author of the book titled Master Secrets of Prayer, said there comes a time in spite of our soft modern ways when we must be desperate in prayer, when we must wrestle, when we must be outspoken and shameless. Many of the prayers recorded in Scripture are cries to God, and despite opinions to the contrary, the Bible recognizes such a thing as storming the gates of heaven and praying through. See, those are terms we don't really use anymore in the church. Some of you who grew up in the church or a member of church years ago, you know that term, praying through. That means not getting up, not not ceasing in your prayers until God answers and comes through. Sometimes that might be several hours. Sometimes it just, it, it just might take who knows how long, but not giving up. There are several examples of how we are told to pray urgently and earnestly. Job 8, 5, and 6. If you would earnestly seek God and make your supplication to the Almighty... If you were pure and upright, surely now he would awake for you and prosper your rightful dwelling place. Mark 5 says, And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name. And when he saw him, speaking of Jesus, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. 
Come and lay your hands on her that she may be healed and she will live. Luke twenty-two forty-four. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly than his sweat, speaking of Jesus, became like great sweat drops of blood falling down to the ground. Colossians 4, 2 tells us, continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. James 5.16, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. You see, God wants us to have a sense of urgency and desperation to our prayers because it forces us to go to Him and to Him alone. Element number one, pray urgently and earnestly. Element number two, pray united and stand fast with the body of Christ. Pray united and stand fast with the body of Christ. I don't know about you, but I always feel stronger whenever I pray with those around me who are like-minded. When we join together, when we link arms together, there just seems to be a stronger power, a stronger presence, um, more energy when we pray like this together. I'm sure that the force with which the Israelites prayed together was like a mighty wave rolling through their situation as thousands upon thousands lifted up their voice and cried out to God. I caught just a glimpse of what just a fraction of this could have been like when a couple weeks ago a number of us uh, went to Columbus for the um, prayer rally with Franklin Graham. And it was a, a powerful atmosphere. I believe they said about seven to 8,000 people showed up that day and just filled up the lawn there in front of the courthouse. And people from all over Ohio joined together and prayed for our nation, prayed that God would forgive and heal our land. It was a wonderful experience to be a part of such a large body of believers to hear, and it wasn't just, although this would have been powerful in and of itself, but it wasn't just people just bowing their heads in silence. No, Franklin Graham encouraged the people as, as, as um, he prayed that we would pray together, that voices would be lifted up. And so you heard seven to 8,000 voices being lifted up to God there in the capital of Ohio, there in Columbus, Ohio. It was a powerful moment. And it reminded me of this point right here. Pray united and stand fast with the body of Christ. Maybe it's something that you want to bring before the entire body. Maybe it's something that you just want to take a a select number of believers that you trust and gather them around you and say, hey, would you pray with me? I need your prayers desperately. One thing that I noticed there, I don't know if I mentioned this before, but at that prayer rally... We were in the lawn, in front of us was the Capitol, and behind us was High Street, okay? And um, throughout uh, some of the, uh, uh, the time together, Franklin Graham was just was talking, and was talking about the country and the different sins and, and, and what we're doing to displease the heart of God. And every once in a while, you would hear some people shouting behind us. Um, I'm thinking, what is going on? And then it dawned on us, there was a host of protesters back there. People protesting um, the fact that we were even there praying. Hard to believe, isn't it? 
but they were protesting because Franklin Graham took a stand, and we take a stand for the truths of God's word, saying homosexuality is against God's law, and abortion is against God's law, and taking stands like that, and they, they felt like that was too much hate. And there were signs uh, saying, Franklin Graham, stop the hate. Franklin Graham, stop the hate. And, and it was amazing. Just to, You could almost tell there was a presence back there that was against you. But what I found interesting, and those of you who went, you remember this. Every once in a while we could hear them, but when we were praying, you couldn't hear the voices. You couldn't hear the voices because we were lifting our voices up to God. That was, that's one of the few things that we can do to kill the enemy. That was one of the few things that we could do to stop the protesting was to lift up our voices united in one accord and perceive there, there, there's a correlation there. There's a link there. You want to defeat the enemy? You want to defeat the protester of your soul? Pray. And pray united and stand fast with those around you. Ecclesiastes 4 says two are better than one. Because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. I encourage you to make sure you surround yourself with the church. Make sure you surround yourself with those who can stand fast with you. In our story, we see where the Israelites did well to cry out to the Lord. However, there is one thing that they failed to do. One thing that they did not do well. If you still have your Bibles open to Exodus 14, I want you to see what they did. We'll start with verse 10 and then go into verse 11. Exodus 14, starting with verse 10 again. And when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. But look what verse 11 says. Then they said to Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? What did they do, church? See, they started out well. They started crying out to God. They started praying to the Lord, but then they began to whine. And then they began to complain. Then they began to get angry at Moses. You see, in order for prayer to be useful in our storms, we, not, we need to pray in faith. That is the key, church. We need to pray in faith. That is something, just being open and honest, I've not always done. You pray about something, but you don't always pray in faith. What did the Israelites do? They started off well, but then they dropped the ball. They immediately forgot about the God they had just cried out to and allowed panic to lead them. They took their eyes off of Jesus, and they blamed Moses. Have you ever had those times whenever you're desperate, you're in turmoil, you're in some crisis or storm, and you go into prayer? And you find that in your prayer, what you do is you just rehearse all the details in the situation out in your mind. And you're just 
telling God about the details that he already knows. Things that are difficult for you to get over. And you spend the entire time like this and you think about what is taking place and you think about this and you think about that. And, and then whenever you say amen, you feel no difference. You know, you're, you're in just about as, as bad a shape afterwards as you were going into it. Why is that? It's because in our prayer we're focusing more on the problem than we are the problem solver. Amen? We're focusing more on the problem than we are the problem solver. Instead of focusing on faith, we focus on this insurmountable mountain that lies before us. You've heard of the old song, prayer is the key to heaven, but faith unlocks the door. An old song there. Listen, the last point that I'm talking about here this morning is is huge, church, because the enemy does not want you to get that. See, he's okay if you pray, just don't pray in faith. He's okay if you talk to God, just don't talk to him in victory or just don't Allow him to take it. Just don't allow the burden off you. He wants you to continue to have the burden on your shoulders. You see, when you and I face a seemingly impossible situation, we need to pray with urgency. We need to stand united and stand fast with the body of Christ for greater strength. But we also need to do all of this in faith. Again, I'm preaching to myself, not just you, church. Puritan writer Thomas Watson said this, Faith is to prayer what the feather is to the arrow. Faith is to prayer what the feather is to the arrow. What does that mean? In order to hit the target, an arrow needs a feather to help give it guidance, to give it Direction. It needs that feather to make it a swift, smooth object to hit its target. The feather allows the arrow to fly swifter and more accurately. In order for prayer, church, to hit its target, prayer must be backed up by faith. For faith allows prayer to fly swifter and more accurately. Faith is an essential element needed for prayer to be useful. Now here's a crucial point. What does, ex- what does it exactly mean to pray with faith? I believe sometimes we have the wrong impression of exactly what that means. When we're in an immediate crisis, we want an immediate answer. However, most of the time when we say amen and open our eyes, the situation has not been immediately remedied. Or sometimes we wait and we wait and we wait and the answer never comes. This is where we get discouraged and take matters into our own hands. Listen, having faith does not mean that we will get our answer as soon as we say amen. However, what it does mean is that our perspectives and our expectations change. It means that we can live in victory, we can live in peace, we can live in contentment even before God answers the prayer. Amen? 
Let me say that again. I don't know that you're listening. What it means is that even before the answer comes, we can have victory, we can live in peace, and we can live in contentment. To pray in faith means that at that moment, instead of giving in to fear, panic, and stress, you are choosing to believe that God is going to take care of the situation. See, that's what it means to pray in faith. It's a choice on your part. It's a choice on my, on my part. You are believing that God is going to take care of the situation even before He does. You may not be sure how He's going to do it. You may not be sure how long it's going to take. But you are placing all of your eggs into God's basket. You're giving Him... When you put your request in that basket, you leave it alone. You leave it to God. You believe that God will come through. And when you do this, then you're praying in faith. When you pray with this kind of faith, you are unleashing the power that God will then use in order to work in your situation. Think about it. If we are praying about something, but we're not using faith, can God work? You don't have to say yes or no, but just give me a head nod. If we are praying like this, but we don't have faith, are we able? is God able to work? No, he's not. I'll just answer it for you. No, he's not. God can't do anything without faith. I mean, he can if he wants. He's God. He can do anything. But without faith, what happened with Jesus in his own hometown? He went to his own hometown. He went back and, and he wanted to do some mighty works and he did some things, but Jesus said that I can't do anything here because nobody here believes in me. Nobody has faith in me. And he left sad because there is no faith there and God cannot work in that situation. Faith. That's hard. Faith is hard. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God in the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. You see, when you believe, when you are convinced that God is working, you will say amen and you will open your eyes and you can have a peace. You can have a contentment. An internal trust, a deep, settled calmness in your soul that you know, okay, I don't know how it's going to work out, but I know that God's going to work this out. This is what the prayer of faith can do. Remember what we talked about in our last series on prayer and war room, and this is war. Faith is an action word. Put your faith in action and trust God. When we pray in faith, and I'm closing here, When we pray in faith, we can say the following four things with certainty. We can say the following four things with certainty. Number one, first, God's sovereignty has allowed me to be in this place, and it's in that fact that I will rest. First, God's sovereignty has allowed me to be in this place, and it's in this fact that I will rest. This goes back to my first point. You are exactly where God wants you to be. See, I'm getting ready to give you three more things. 
And these are things that maybe someone in here is like, man, I really want to live that. I really want that desperately, Pastor, but I'm having a hard time. Just, just believe God. Just put your faith in God for whatever it is that you're facing. Number two, he will keep me here in his love and give me the grace to behave as his child. See, that these are things that you need in the midst, in your trial, in your storm, in your crisis. He will, give, he will keep me here in his love and give me grace to behave as his child. Number three, he will make this trial into a blessing, teaching me the lessons he intends me to learn and working in me the grace he means to bestow. I know I probably should have spaced that out a little bit more on the screen, but you can see that. And lastly, in the time and the way that he knows best, God will bring me out of this storm. Folks, those are lessons to hold on to from the Red Sea. Our three points today, cry out to God earnestly and urgently. Stand united and stand fast with the body of Christ. And pray in faith. Either we're going to believe God is who He says He is, or we're not. Either we're going to live like God is who He is, or we're not. Joyce, I'm going to have you come up and um, get ready to play that song for us here in a second. I want to read you a closing story that just blows my mind every time I hear it. It's, um, I often have referred to that man right there, George Mueller, just a wonderful saint, wonderful prayer warrior. This is a story about George Mueller. There was a man who uh, came into contact with the captain of a sailing vessel, and this is how the conversation goes. A number of years ago, I went to America with a steamship captain who was a very devoted Christian. When we were off the coast of Newfoundland, he said to me, quote, The last time I sailed here, which was five weeks ago, something happened that, something happened that revolutionized my entire Christian life. I had been on the bridge for 24 straight hours when George Mueller of Bristol, England, who is a passenger on board, came to me and said, Captain, I need to tell you that I must be in Quebec on Saturday afternoon. That is impossible, the captain replied. Very well, Mueller responded. If your ship cannot take me, God will find some other way. For I have never missed an engagement in 57 years. Captain, let's go down to the chart room to pray. The captain said, I looked at this man of God and thought to myself, what lunatic asylum did he escape from? I had never encountered someone like this. Mr. Mueller, I said, do you realize how dense the fog is outside? No, he replied, 
My eye is not on the dense fog, but on the living God who controls every circumstance of my life. Did you hear that? My eyes are not on the fog, but the living God who controls every circumstance of my life. He then knelt down and prayed one of the most simple prayers I have ever heard, the captain said. When he had finished, listen to this, I started to pray, but he put his hand on my shoulder and he told me not to pray. He said, first, you do not believe that God will answer, and secondly, I believe he already has. Consequently, there is no need whatsoever for you to pray about it. As I looked at him, he said, Captain, I have known my Lord for 57 years. There has never been even a single day that I have failed to get an audience with the king. Get up, Captain. Open the door and you will see that the fog is gone. The captain said, I got up and indeed the fog was gone. And on Saturday afternoon, George Mueller was in Quebec for his meeting. Would you bow your heads? Jesus, man, what a simple message. What a simple message. It's not always easy to live out, though, is it, Jesus? To know that we are exactly where you want us to be. To learn to ask the right questions. God, how can you be glorified in my life through this? To know who the enemy is. To be aware that we don't have to fall prey to him, but just be aware of who he is and what he is and what he's trying to do, but to keep our eyes on Jesus and then God today to pray. Pray. Pray with an earnestness, an urgency. To pray with the body of Christ. To surround ourselves with people who are like-minded. And God, to pray in faith. These are some of the things that can get us through our storms. Father, I've said it before. I may be talking to an entire group of people that life is going great right now. But God very well could be that whenever they step outside of this building, they very well may find themselves in a situation to where they desperately need the things that we're talking about. Or maybe there's someone here that's there. God, help them to put these lessons into practice. Help them by faith to trust you. Help them, help me to say my eyes are not on the fog. I'm not looking at the fog, but I'm looking at the one who controls it all, who controls every circumstance in my life. Prayer is such a simple message. It's such a simple word, but it's such a powerful, transformative word. It can change the course of life if we will pray and pray correctly. Thank you, Lord.
We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Take your hymnals and turn to page 647. Page 647. We're going to end with this great song. Folks, the altars are open. We're not going to tarry, but let's uh, go ahead and stand and sing Tis So Sweet to Trust in Jesus. Page 647. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus Just to take Him at His just to rest upon His promise, just to know, thus saith the Lord, Jesus, Jesus, how I trust Him, how 